Hello, friends. Welcome to another session in Survey of Theology. My name is Stephen Cook, and today we're going to pick up in our next lesson. We're going to talk about salvation from the penalty of sin and salvation from the power of sin. And uh, again, just a reminder that this is a survey of theology, so I'm introducing you to these uh, biblical concepts and terms as they are found in the Bible. Uh, but for a good treatment on the subject of our uh, salvation, I'm going to recommend a book here by Dr. Charles Ryrie called So Great Salvation. So Great Salvation by Dr. Charles Ryrie. It's a relatively small book. It's an easy read, but highly recommended. And uh, and so I'll put that out there for you. Uh, but let me go ahead and jump into today's topic, and we will be chasing down a number of scripture references as normal. So let's talk about salvation from the penalty of sin. Now, broadly speaking here, the word soteriology, and that's what we're studying today, uh, to study salvation is in theology called soteriology. Soteriology. And the word itself, soteriology, comes from two Greek words. The first one is soter, which means a savior, deliverer, or, or, or perseverer. Uh, and this is derived from uh, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. And then we have the word logos, which in the Greek means statement, speech, uh, but in the English means the study of. Uh, the word logos also means a word about, a word about. So if we talk about soteriology, we're talking about the study of salvation or a word about salvation. Soteriology, then, is the study of salvation as it has been revealed in Scripture. Now, the most common word for salvation in the Hebrew Old Testament is yesha, yesha. And sometimes you see it as yeshua, yeshua, which means deliverance, rescue, salvation, also safety and welfare. And that definition uh, from the Old Testament is taken from a uh, another lexicon that I used uh, called the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew and English Lexicon. Again, the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew and English Lexicon. It's a good lexicon. I do like it. I do reference it quite a bit. It's an older lexicon, so it's not as it's less expensive than, say, the Hallet, the Hebrew and Aramaic Lexicon of the New Testament. Uh, but if you're looking for a good uh, Old Testament Hebrew lexicon that's more affordable, uh, I do also recommend that one as well. Now, salvation in the Old Testament, we should understand, was primarily physical. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we should understand that. In fact, I would, I, I forget exactly the numbers, but roughly about 75%, and here I'm speaking approximately, uh, roughly about 75% of the usage of the word uh, to save or salvation from Yesha or from Sozo. Uh, in the Greek New Testament has to do with physical deliverance, physical deliverance. Uh, for example, when Peter uh, was walking on the water, uh, Peter, uh, remember, he begins to sink into the water and he cries out to the Lord and says, save me. Well, he's not asking for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Uh, he's asking for physical deliverance. And whenever we look at the meaning of a word, context always determines the meaning of a word. 
context always determines the meaning of a word. And we should really, really understand that. And that's why it's so important to go back to the biblical text and to do these word studies and to say, okay, what's going on here? What is the meaning of the word as the author is using the word in this context? But again, I should drive the point that context always determines the meaning of a word. In fact, I could create a word. In fact, I'm going to borrow a word that I heard used once by uh, Chester McCauley, uh, who is a very, very excellent Bible teacher, and I recommend his, uh, his audio lectures. Uh, but he gave the illustration one time, um, uh, and he made up a word, and it was the word shibglub. And so if I were to use this word, if I were to say, uh, imagine uh, the word shibglub in your mind, uh, put a picture in your mind of, of what the word means, okay? Now, if I put that into a context, if I create a context, and let's say that I have a shibglub in my pocket, okay? Well, now, based upon the context of how I have used that word, I have just, whatever your vision of it was, maybe maybe you heard the word shibglub and you thought of something large, maybe like an elephant or something. Well, as soon as I take the word and I put it into context, I've just shrunk its size. I've just brought it down. And so it's something, first of all, physical and tangible, and it's something that will fit within my pocket. Okay, so if I say I have a shibglub in my pocket, well, again, the context here helps helps us to understand the meaning of the word in a in a limited sense but let's say i use it in another way let's say i let's say i let's say i use the word uh this way let's say i take the shib glub out of my pocket and run it through my hair okay well now i've used the word in another context and so based upon these uh two uh, uh contextual usages that i've set forth the likely meaning of a shib glub would be a comb so, again, it's one of those things where when you look at a word, and it doesn't matter what the word is, it could be any word, the word finds meaning in its context, in its context. And that's one of the reasons why I go back to the scripture so much, because we want to look at words and phrases as they appear in the context of the scripture, as the author used the word in context with regard to his a particular audience. And so we just we always want to pay attention to that. So as I look at these various words, you, you'll see what's happening here. You'll see as we look at these words, we'll see how the context helps to uh, flesh out this meaning. So when we think about salvation in the Old Testament, it was primarily physical in nature, as one might be delivered from his enemy in battle, or delivered from a plague. Uh, now, for example, I have here First Chronicles uh, 16.35 pulled up, in which the author says, uh, Save us, O God, save us, O God, of our salvation. So the cry is for salvation, recognizes that God is the God of our salvation. And then he says, Gather us and deliver us from the nations deliver us from the nations. And so this speaks of a of a physical threat by the surrounding nations. And you'll find that. You'll find that throughout the Old Testament predominantly. 
you'll also find it again in the New Testament where it refers to a physical deliverance. And I referenced a minute ago Peter when he's walking on the water and he cries out to the Lord and he says, save me, sozo in the Greek. And there again, he's talking about physical deliverance. Now, quoting Dr. Charles Ryrie, he states, quote, the most, uh, the most important Hebrew root related to salvation in the Old Testament is Yesha. Originally, it meant to be roomy or broad in contrast to narrowness or oppression. Thus, it signifies freedom from what binds or restricts. And it came to mean deliverance, liberation, or giving width and breadth to something. He goes on, he says, faith was the necessary condition for salvation in the Old Testament as well as in the New. Uh, Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness, end quote. Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, Dr. Charles Raven, that is taken from his basic theology, which is one of the required textbooks if you are taking this for college credit. Some may uh, just be auditing this course. Uh, but if you're taking this uh, for college credit at uh, Tyndale Theological Seminary and Biblical Institute, then this is one of the required textbooks. So I'm just citing from that textbook. Now, let's look at how the New Testament writers uh, primarily use the following words. And we're going to look at three words here. We're going to look at sozo, uh, the verb. We're going to look at soter, the noun. And also soteria, the noun. So let's look at soter, or sozo, the verb here. <clears throat> now, sozo refers in one sense to the act of physical deliverance in certain biblical passages. And again, context determines the meaning of a word. And let's look at uh, Matthew 18, 25, for example. And here we have a situation where we have the disciples. They're on a boat, uh, and this is, this is the scenario. And it says in uh, Matthew 8, 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. So the waves, so apparently a pretty big storm, and the waves are crashing over the boat, uh, uh, onto the boat. And, uh, and Jesus himself, it says, was asleep. So apparently he was not bothered by this storm. Uh, so he was, he was quite comfortable. He was, uh, he was sleeping. But, uh, but there's a storm going on in the soul of the disciples. And they are, and, and it says in verse 25, And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And the word save here translates our Greek verb sozo. sozo. And so he says, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And, and so there, in that context, it speaks of a physical deliverance. If we look at Acts chapter 27, verse 20, we have another uh, uh uh, sea and boat scenario, and this is where the Apostle Paul is on a ship here, and it says, And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, uh, from then on all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. And there's our word sozo again, and so he's talking about, again, physical deliverance. In verse 31, Paul said to the centurions and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. And there's our use of our word sozo. So he's not talking about spiritual salvation. He's talking about physical deliverance. So again, we always have to get back to this issue of context determines the meaning of a word. 
But it is also used in Scripture to speak of a spiritual deliverance, of a spiritual deliverance. Uh, and I think of like 1 Corinthians one twenty one. For since the wisdom, uh, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. To save those who believe. And there is the use of our Greek verb sozo. And here this speaks of a spiritual deliverance. A spiritual deliverance. And so this speaks of the deliverance from the danger of the lake of fire, which is the reality of all humanity, uh, of everyone, unless they turn to Christ as Savior. And so at the moment that we turn to Christ as Savior, uh, believing that he died for us, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that we trust in him and him alone, and we turn from all um, all uh, physical attempts of, of ourselves, any works uh, to save ourselves, if we turn from that, then, uh, then we are forgiven all of our sins, Ephesians 1.7, we're given eternal life, uh, John 10, 28. We're given the gift of righteousness, Romans 5, 17. We're given uh, a spiritual gift and many, many spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3. But we are saved from the lake of fire. There is no condemnation, Romans 8, 1 tells us, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we're born into this world in Adam, but at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. And Paul tells us in Colossians 1.13 that we are transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. And so there is a spiritual deliverance that occurs at the moment that we believe in Christ as our Savior. Of course, Titus 3.5 is another good passage, which says, He saved us. He saved us. And here we have again the use of the Greek verb sozo. He saved us. And this is talking about a spiritual deliverance. So he saved us from eternal separation. He saved us from the lake of fire. He saved us, and notice he says, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. That is, it's not based on any works that we do. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Now, moving on in the notes here, as to our spiritual deliverance, we are saved from the penalty of sin, we are saved from the power of sin, and we are also saved from the presence of sin. To be saved from the penalty of sin means that there is no condemnation. Uh, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, we are born into this world in Adam. We are born into this world in sin, uh, being identified with Adam. Uh, but again, at the moment of faith in Christ, we are transferred over uh, into being in Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so we are uh, saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never, never, never face the lake of fire. Uh, now, if we become disobedient children of God, 
which is possible, just like the prodigal son uh, was disobedient and took his inheritance and went out in the world and squandered it in worldly living. Um, if we go down that road, we are not in danger of forfeiting our salvation. What we're in danger of is uh, one divine discipline, uh, Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, because he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines like a father his own son. So if a child of God thinks that he or she can turn away from the Lord and live as they please, well, they're about to get a, a quick wake-up call uh, because God will lower the boom. Uh, and we can also forfeit future rewards. So at the moment that we turn away from the Lord, we are operating in the power of the flesh and the energy of our sin nature, and we are living according to Satan's world system. And at that moment, uh, we are producing wood, hay, and straw. That is the production of our life. And this will be burned up. Uh, you can read about this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, which talks about our rewards. Because as Christians, as believers in Christ, when we, when we leave this world, either by death or by rapture, we will enter into heaven and there will be a time of judgment. Not judgment uh, as to whether or not we will get into heaven. That, that is secure. Uh, our position in heaven is secure because of our faith in Christ and because of what Christ accomplished for us. Uh, but that judgment that we will face will be a judgment with regard to the rewards that we will receive in the eternal state. And, uh, and, and it, Paul says that uh, for some, uh, it will be a life of wood, hay, and straw. All combustible material, when exposed to the fire, will be burned up. Uh, but then there are some who will have a life that is marked by gold, uh, gold silver, and precious stones. Well, these things are... Uh, are valuable and recognized as valuable and when subject to fire will survive. And so this will go into the eternal state. So how we live uh, in this life, whether we are abiding by the flesh and by the values of the world, or whether we are learning and living God's word and advancing to spiritual maturity, impacts our eternal destiny. So again, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Once the believer turns to Christ as Savior... Uh, we are forgiven all of our sins, given eternal life, the gift of righteousness, and many, many, many other wonderful things happen to us. Uh, and we are then called to advance to spiritual maturity. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to become spiritually mature uh, and to advance in our walk with him and to pursue a life of righteousness. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to pursue a life of righteousness. Uh, so we are saved from the penalty of sin. We are saved from the penalty of sin. And this comes to us just simply by faith in Christ, by faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. And there's the use of our uh, verb sozo again. Uh, and so, for by grace you have been saved. And that is saved from the penalty of sin. You have been saved from uh, ever facing the lake of fire. That will That will not happen. And you are saved by grace. And by the way, the grace here is unmerited favor. Cotus in the Greek. Cotus. And it means that one is the recipient of undeserved favor. Unmerited kindness. It means you don't merit it. It means you don't earn it. You don't work for it. It is born out of the bounty and the goodness and the open-handedness of the giver. In this case, God. He says, for by grace you have been saved. In other words, you don't earn it, you don't work for it. 
It is not by works at all. So for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And faith does not save. Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive that salvation. So for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of yourselves, 100% not of yourselves. Salvation is the gift of God. Now listen, if it's a gift, it means the other person paid for it in full. Okay? And it is received freely. Freely. And follow me on this. If you have to give anything, if you have to give anything, it's not a gift. It means you bought it. But to understand a gift, even when when we give a gift to somebody... And there are times where I will do something for somebody as an act of kindness, and they'll look at me and they'll say, oh, I owe you one. Please don't say that. Please stop. (laughs) You don't owe me anything. It's a gift, and it's actually kind of an insult because people uh, have a hard time accepting kindness. And so uh, when we give something as a gift, it's freely given, no strings attached. It's a gift paid for by the giver, uh, offered freely to the recipient, no strings attached. It's it's a gift. And when we understand salvation to be the gift of God, it is freely given and freely received. Again, it is the gift of God. And Paul could not be clearer in Romans 3.9 when he says, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because if you do anything, anything to earn your salvation or even to keep your salvation, uh, then you have introduced works. And to that degree, you then can boast. Uh, Now, good works, let me be clear here, uh, just so that I don't leave something out there. Good works should follow salvation. They should follow salvation, but they are never the condition of it. Again, let me say that again. Good works should follow salvation, but they are never, never, never the condition of it. And Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that is absolutely correct, and we're called to that. And if we, if, we learn, if we learn God's word and live God's word and walk by faith, then we will advance to maturity. This is a life of gold, silver, precious stones. This will be rewarded by the Lord in eternity, uh, and it results in the best possible life for us. Um, it also saves us from uh, uh, divine discipline in this life, <laughs> because if we turn away from the Lord again, he whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. So we should understand then again that uh, salvation is a gift, but when we are saved, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Uh, we are also saved from the power of sin, the power of sin. And that is that the sin nature, and here when he's talking about being saved from the power of sin, uh, he's talking about the sin nature uh, within each and every one of us, because the sin nature is not eradicated from the believer at the moment of salvation. It's not removed from us. We still have that sinful proclivity, and whatever your sinful 
uh, proclivity or propensity was prior to salvation, it continues. In other words, if you dealt with alcoholism before salvation, you may struggle with that after salvation. If you struggled with lust before salvation, you may struggle with lust after salvation. If you struggled with anger before salvation, you may struggle with anger after salvation. If you struggled with lying before salvation, you may struggle with lying after salvation. And so these things will continue on because the sin nature is not eradicated. Now, we are not slaves to the sin nature anymore because now we have a new nature. We have a new nature in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We have the Word of God that we are taking in on a daily basis. And by the way, you cannot, 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 let me drive this point clearly enough, you cannot grow and find victory over sin apart from the Word of God. You have to take it in. You have to learn it because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. Learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will because you can't live what you don't know. And so you have to learn it to live it. Now, learning it is no guarantee that you will live it uh, because it must be implemented by faith. This is why in Matthew seven twenty four, Jesus said, The man who hears my words and does them shall be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Uh, and when the storms came and crashed against the house, it stood. But notice the man who hears my words and does them. He goes on, he says, the man who hears my words and does not do them is like a fool. So it is possible to hear the word and not obey the word. And this is why in James one twenty two he says, be ye doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And I think of another wonderful passage in the Old Testament in Psalm 19, Psalm 19, verse 9. Uh, the psalmist writes, um, he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? In verse 11, he says, thy word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Thy word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. And so as we take in the word and we abide by the word, uh, it has a cleansing effect within us. And uh, and so as we are positive to the Lord, we can then move in the direction of living his will, and this as we learn his word. In John seventeen seventeen, Jesus praying to the Father, he said, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. So you will not experience phase two of the Christian life, deliverance from the power of sin, apart from the intake and the application of God's word to life. But the sin nature and its power over us has been handicapped. And so Paul writes in Romans 6.11, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. And dead here uh, does not mean cessation of life. Death always means separation. So to be dead to sin means to be separated, means the, uh, the power of the sin nature over us has been cut that we now have real choices because prior to our salvation, we only had the sin nature to abide by. It was that which energized us from the inside out. Um, but now we can say no to that and we can walk in the spirit and we can live by God's word and we can live by faith. And the sin nature will put up a fight. In fact, Galatians 5.17 uh, makes that very clear that the spirit and the that 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 the sin nature within us and the spirit there's a war that goes on within the believer it's a civil war as it were 
And even in uh, Romans chapter 7, Paul says, I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. But again, we must by faith live in the reality that we can find victory in Christ and, uh, and because of our relationship to him. So Paul says in Romans 6.11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And by the way, this is done by faith, not feelings. This is done by faith, not feelings. And he says, Therefore, do not let sin, that is the sin nature, reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. And so, as believers, uh, we are to uh, put on the new man. Uh, That is, we are to walk in the newness of life that is ours in Christ Jesus. And what does Paul say here? He says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And, uh, and then he says uh, in Romans 6, 14, for, you sh- for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And I've talked about law before, uh, but we are not under the law system. Uh, and so we are under the law of Christ, and we are living in the dispensation of grace. So again, we are delivered from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately we will be delivered from the, from the very presence of sin from the very presence of sin. And let me find a passage over here. I didn't include it in the notes, but let me uh, chase it down here. And it's in Philippians uh, chapter 3. Let's see if I can get here a little quicker going this way. In, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Paul makes an interesting comment here. He says, um, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So here he's talking about the body. Here he's talking about the human body. And there will come a time in which our body will be transformed into conformity with the body of his glory into conformity with the body of his glory. I was talking about Jesus Christ here. And in John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Interestingly enough, in verse 5, John says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So we are going to be like him, and in him there is no sin. So this means that ultimately, when we leave this world, either by death or by rapture, uh, when we leave this world, we will receive a new body, and it will be a body that will be free from the presence of sin. So when we think of our salvation, it's a total package. And we really should think of it this way. We should think of it as our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. Justification, saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, saved from the power of sin. Glorification, uh, ultimately saved from the presence of sin. Now let's move on here. And let's talk about the uh, use of the noun soter, which itself means savior. 
And it refers to the agent of salvation, that is, the one who rescues or delivers another from danger, from harm or danger. Uh, we think of Luke 2.1, which describes, uh, which says, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior. And there's the use of our word soter, uh, who is Christ the Lord. And so this speaks of the one who rescues. It speaks of the agent of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the one who saves us. Uh, and so again, here that it refers to the agent of one who saves. John 4.42 Uh, And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of uh, what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Here speaking of the Samaritan woman who was preaching to the people in her city. And she says, for we have heard uh, for ourselves and know that this one, that is Jesus, is indeed the Savior of the world. So again, it speaks of the agent of salvation, the one who rescues or delivers Ephesians 5.23 speaks of Christ, who is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Philippians 3.20 refers to a Savior who is the Lord uh, Christ Jesus. Uh, The third word that appears is soteria. Soteria. And this refers to the provision of salvation, the provision of salvation, rescue or deliverance that is brought to us by another. And one can think of Acts 13, 26, uh, which reads, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and to those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation uh, has been sent. The message of this salvation has been sent. So here it speaks of the provision. Uh, Romans 1, 16, uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for deliverance. Uh, to everyone who what who believes and salvation is by grace alone we don't earn it or deserve it it is by faith alone because it is not by works at all at all and it is in Christ alone because Christ and Christ alone saves and so we should understand that that salvation is to everyone who believes now I run into people sometimes who say well you know, uh, we have to uh, we have to talk about Christ. We have to do good works. We have to do all these things that demonstrate uh, a life of faith. Well, I think we should do those things, but those things are not conditions of salvation. They are not conditions of salvation. And let's say I were to create a hypothetical situation, but very very plausible uh, situation. Uh, let's say I were to uh, let's let's say I were to um, uh, describe a girl, could choose a boy, but let's choose a girl, uh, who has never read the Bible, never heard about Christ, never heard about salvation uh, through the cross of Christ, never heard about any of these things. And let's say uh, at the age of 20, let's say she has an accident. And let's say she's crippled from the neck down. So she's a quadriplegic. Physically, she cannot move. And let's say she also loses her power of speech. So she cannot talk. And she cannot physically move, okay? But her brain is fully functional. And, uh, and, and, so, and she can hear just fine. Let's say she can hear and see just fine. Well, can this girl be saved? Can she be saved? Now, she'll never be able to say anything 
throughout her life. But let's say uh, she hears the gospel, that Christ died for us, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by many, and that if one will trust in Christ and Christ alone, uh, that that one can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, if she hears this information in her mind, in thought only, she can trust in Christ, she can turn to him, and she can believe upon him, and she can be forgiven all of her sins. Now, she will never verbally be able to say anything to share Christ with anybody. Physically, she'll never be able to do any works. And as far as what we can see and hear, uh, there will be silence and, and no, no action. And so we will just see a woman who may live for another 40 or 50 years, completely silent, completely immobile, and yet... Uh, she can have eternal life. And if she turns to Christ and in thought, trust in him, she can have eternal life. And in fact, I would argue that she could have a robust prayer life. Now, she, if let's say somebody continues to read the Bible to her day after day, uh, can she advance to spiritual maturity? Well, to the degree that, that, uh, that she can live out the word of God, that she can trust him, that because she can commit mental attitudes, sin, she can commit, uh, uh, she can operate by fear or worry, she can uh, commit mental lust. She can commit mental murder. I mean, she can engage in all sorts of mental attitude sins. So the, so the opportunity for mental attitude sin is just, it's, it's very prevalent in her mind. Uh, but she can understand spiritual victory. She can advance to spiritual maturity. She could have uh, a robust uh, prayer life and walk with the Lord in, in her mind. Uh, but again, outwardly, we would never see anything or hear anything that would tell us that she is, in fact, saved. So when we, when we get down and when we think about who can be saved and what are the conditions of salvation, I, I like to bring it down to what I call an irreducible minimum. <laughs> bring it down to an irreducible minimum. And, of course, you think about even the thief on the cross. I mean, talk about a deathbed conversion. Here is a man who turned to Christ and believed upon him. And Jesus said, today, so this man was going to leave the world that day and enter into the eternal state. You talk about cutting it close. But uh, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so there was a man who had his, what we might call a deathbed conversion. But again, when we talk about salvation, soteria, the noun, we're talking about the provision of salvation to rescue or the deliverance brought about by another. Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for by it the power of God for salvation, uh, the provision of salvation, is to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Uh, Ephesians 1.13 says, uh, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. 2 Timothy 2.10, So that they also may obtain the salvation that is the provision, which is where, which is in Christ Jesus, which is in Christ Jesus. So moving on in the notes here, in an article in Bibliotheca Sacra, which is a theological journal, a very good one, uh, Dr. Lewisberry Chafer states, and this was taken from an article that he wrote back in 1945 on the subject of soteriology, he says, quote, As to the meaning of the word salvation, the Old and New Testaments are much alike. The word communicates the thought of deliverance, safety, preservation, soundness, restoration, and healing. But though so wide a range of human experience is expressed by the word of salvation, its specific major use 
is to note is to denote a work of God in behalf of man. Let me say that last part again by him. He says its its specific major use is to note is to denote a work of God in behalf of man. End quote. So it is a top down uh, salvation. It is a top down deliverance from God to man. And and that's important to understand. Now the Bible teaches that God created mankind in His image without sin. We realize, and we talked about this uh, in a previous lesson, Adam and Eve committed sin and corrupted the entire human race with sin. We think of Romans 5.12, which says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned, that is, we all sinned in Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And all of Adam's descendants are born into this world spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.3 says that we are by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2.12 says that we are separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. Colossians 1.21 says that we are alienated from God. Jude 1.19 says that we are devoid of the Spirit. And again, uh, from as I mentioned before, uh, we are sinners in three ways in the Scripture. We are sinners by imputation of Adam's original sin. And imputation there being a word that just simply means that something is credited uh, to our account. That we are uh, sinners because of uh, the imputation of Adam's original sin. We are also sinners by nature. And we are also sinners by choice. The Bible teaches that man, mankind is completely marked by sin in every aspect uh, of our being. Sin permeates our thoughts, our feelings, our volition, that is, our will. The sin nature resides in every person and negatively influences our relationships with other people and most of all with God. And really, sin renders us unable to save ourselves. This is, this is such a big uh, sticking point for some people. But we should understand that sin renders us helpless. And when you look at, at Romans 5, 6 through 10, there are four words that jump off the page there. Uh, in Romans 5, 6, Paul says, For while we were still helpless, and that's 100% helpless, totally helpless, completely unable to save ourselves at all. We bring nothing to the cross. Zero. Nada. Zilch. We bring not well. If we brought anything to the cross, it would be sin, and it would be death, because that's what Christ bore. He bore our sin, and he paid the penalty uh, for our sin, which is death. And so that would be our contribution. But that's not a compliment. Okay, that's 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 not a good help. And so we, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Not the good person, not the kind person, not the gracious person, uh, not the loving person. No, no, no. Christ died for the ungodly. And if we're going to come to God, we must operate from divine perspective, which means that we accept his estimation of who we are that we accept his estimation of who we are. And the estimation of God about man, it's not high, let me tell you. We are dead uh, in our trespasses and sins. We are helpless. We are ungodly. 
He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, not lovely, not worthy, not kind, not gracious, not good, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. I didn't ask for it. I don't deserve it. It happened 2,000 years ago before Steve was even conceived and brought into this world. Christ died for me. He hung between heaven and earth. He bore the wrath of God as my sin was placed upon him, and he was judged in my place, the just for the unjust, to the end that he might bring me to God. But Christ died for sinners, and we are unable to save ourselves. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, not justified by works, We are justified by his blood because the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm that paid our sin debt in full. We are justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Sozo. You see, that speaks of our spiritual deliverance. We shall be saved. Saved from what? From the wrath of God. We will not experience the wrath of God at any time in the future. We may experience the discipline of God, but that comes to us in love because God doesn't tolerate our foolishness and he gives us what we need to help us advance to maturity and to grow up. But we will be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so we see here these four words that are used. However, from eternity past, God also decreed to provide salvation through the death of Christ. And this provision was not based on any merit or worthiness in sinful man. We don't earn it or deserve it, never have, never will. But it is founded solely on his love and grace. I've bolded this section here uh, to drive this point. Salvation is never what we do for God. Salvation is never what we do for God, but what God has done for us through the substitutionary atoning work of His Son, who bore the penalty of our sin on, on the cross, and who freely gives us eternal life and imputes His righteousness to us who believe in Christ as Savior. A lot of times, uh, there may be times I'm talking with somebody and I'll, I'll ask them, you know, what is a Christian? And they'll say it is one f- uh, who does things for God. That a Christian is one who does things for God. But really, a Christian is one for whom God has done great things. A Christian is one for whom God has done great things. Romans 3.24 makes it very clear that we are justified as a gift. A gift by His grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, quoting uh, Lewis Berry Chafer again from Bibliotheca Sacra, he says, quote, In its broadest significance, the doctrine of salvation includes every divine undertaking for the believer from his deliverance out of the lost estate to his final presentation in glory, conformed to the image of Christ. Since the divine object is thus all-inclusive, or since the divine objective is all-inclusive, The theme is divided naturally into three tenses. The Christian was saved when he believed. Um, This past tense aspect of it is the essential uh, and unchanging fact of salvation. At the moment of believing, the one is completely delivered from his lost estate, cleansed, forgiven, justified, born of God, clothed in the merit of Christ, freed from all condemnation, and saved forevermore. B, the believer is being saved from the dominion of sin, uh, 
the dominion of sin. In this second tense of salvation, the believer is being divinely preserved and sanctified. And and see the believer, he goes on, he says, the believer is yet to be saved from the presence of sin when presented faultless in, uh, faultless in glory. To this may be added other passages which each in turn present all three tenses or aspects of salvation, end quote. So all are being all are saved by hearing God's promises and believing him to be true to his word that he provides uh, forgiveness of sins the imputation of righteousness and the gift of eternal life to all who place their faith in Jesus as savior Henry Thiessen states quote all that is required of any man is to accept what God has provided in Christ If a man by faith accepts the offer of life, he is born again of the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, regeneration, sanctification, and glorification are the work of God for the benefit of men and women. People respond positively to the call and work of God in their lives. Here I'm going to quote from Dr. Chafer from Major Bible Themes. He says, In the New Testament, in about 115 passages, The salvation of a sinner is declared to depend only upon believing, and in about 35 passages to depend on faith, which is a synonym for believing. By believing, an individual wills to trust Christ. It is an act of the whole man, not just his intellect or his emotion. While intellectual assent is not of real faith... Uh, and merely a stirring of the emotions is short of faith, believing is a definite act in which the individual wills to receive Christ by faith, end quote. So let's move on to Lesson 29 in Salvation from the Power of Sin. In Phase 2 of the Christian life, this is our sanctification. In Phase 2 of the Christian life, God works in His children to deliver them from the power of sin and to help them advance to spiritual maturity. To this end, God rescues us from sin's power. In major Bible themes, uh, Dr. Chafer states, quote, Since salvation from the power of sin is God's gracious provision for those whom he has already saved from the guilt and the penalty of sin, this doctrine in its application is limited to Christians. Though saved and safe in Christ, Christians still have the disposition to sin and do sin. To these facts, both scripture and human experience give abundant proof. Based upon the fact that Christians sin, the New Testament proceeds to explain the divinely provided way of deliverance. Now, the problem of sin in the life of a Christian, it is there. Uh, We have what is called the sin nature, which is called the flesh. It's called the old self. uh, Like in Romans uh, 6.6, Paul talks about the old self uh, there. In uh, Ephesians 4.22, Paul says uh, that in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, the, um, uh, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. And so both of these are present. You have the old self, the new self. You have the old nature, the new nature. Paul talks about this in uh, Galatians 5.17. He says, For the flesh... And there he uses the the noun sarks, and he's talking about the sin nature. For the flesh, 
That is, the sin nature sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. There is a civil war that goes on in within every believer. Uh, so we have this sinful nature, and this is the source of internal temptation uh, and leads us in certain directions of sin. And again, the sin nature has certain tendencies, and it could be a religious tendency, uh, and you find people that are like involved in cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and so on who are very religious. The Pharisees and Sadducees were lost. In fact, uh, in John chapter 8, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil. They're not saved, but very, very religious, very religious, read their Bibles, uh, discussed theology, engaged in all sorts of religious activities, works. They tithed. They prayed. They did all these outward things. Now, they had uh, religion without the reality of Christ. They had religion, and, and religion uh, I define as man by man's works or efforts trying to win the approval of God. That religion is man by man's efforts trying to win the approval of God. And you can't. But this builds up pride. Oh, the danger of pride. And, uh, but the sin nature can take you in a very moral direction, uh, a very religious direction. In fact, it was the religious sinners who were the ones who ultimately rejected and crucified Christ. And when I run into religious people, man, I get nervous. I get nervous uh, because they are the hardest nut to crack, so to speak. Uh, but religious people, the sin nature can take you in that direction. Or it can take you in the direction of lasciviousness. Now, now there's two kinds of degenerates in the world. And degenerate, uh, I, I refer to as those who are not just immoral, although the word is commonly used that way, but of somebody who is an unbeliever. Because you have the regenerate, those who are born again, and those who are degenerate. Um, and so in one sense, you have moral or religious degenerates. And that's the, that's the Pharisee, Sadducees type. You have moral and religious degenerates. And then you have immoral degenerates. Um, but anyway, when we talk about the sin nature, the sin nature can go in one of those two directions. Well, that's true for an unbeliever. It's true for a believer as well, that we can uh, still operate by the sin nature. And this is one of the reasons why we, we must learn to uh, be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. We must understand what is the spiritual life. And I'm currently teaching through uh, the spiritual life. In fact, I just finished uh, Lesson 10 just a few days ago. And that's available on my on my podcast channel, uh, which is called Thinking on Scripture. But you have to understand what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit and to grow in grace and to grow in, in the knowledge of our, and to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You, you have to understand certain things and then apply yourself, because part of the spiritual life is a discipline. It really is. It is a discipline of mind. It is a discipline of will with regard to what we think, what we say, how we live. And I'll talk about these things in some of, of the future lessons as we talk about survey of theology when we get into this uh, at future times, because I have notes specific to this. But the problem of the sin nature does continue in the life of a Christian, and so we should understand that we uh, are being delivered from the very power of sin. It's called the old self. It is not eradicated from the believer during his or her time on earth. Nor is the sin nature ever reformed as though it can be made to love God. Because the sin nature is not removed from the believer after salvation, the believer experiences conflict within. The believer experiences conflict within. And we see this 
in um, in the uh, Galatians five seventeen. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. These are in opposition to one another, and that must be understood as being the case. Paul talks about this in Romans seven eighteen through twenty three and. And he's talking about himself as a Christian, as a believer, as one who is born again, as one who has the Holy Spirit, as one who has a new nature in Christ. And he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And there he's using uh, sarks again. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. He says, uh, but if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Sin which dwells in me. Hamartia, the noun. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. He agrees, he, 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 he concurs with the law of God in his inner man, that is his new nature. He says, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war, waging war, waging war. <laughs> How many times can I say that? Because that's what's going to be happening. That is what is what will happen in the life of the believer. Now, here's the reality of it. Only the Christian has two opposing natures because the unbeliever only has the sin nature. So only the Christian has two opposing natures and his spiritual growth, catch this, guarantees conflict. His spiritual growth guarantees conflict. Uh, Now, we are called to growth, and we can reach a place of maturity. And as we advance in our walk with the Lord and produce a life of righteousness, we will sin less. We will never hit a place of sinlessness where we are perfect in this life because the sin nature will not be eradicated. Uh, But we will sin less. And the sin nature, though crippled at the moment of regeneration, does not give up control without a fight, and only the spiritually advancing Christian can overcome the power and habits of the flesh as he devotes himself to learning and living scripture and to walk by means of the spirit. Now, I bring up here the law, the Mosaic law is the rule of life, because there are some Christians who would like to seek to deal with the flesh by means of going back under the law, but that is not how we handle the, the sin nature. Uh, We handle it because of our identity, our new identity in Christ and our position in Christ. That is the key to victory. And that is predicated on a positional truth. Uh, But the Mosaic Law, to understand it properly, functioned as the rule of life for God's people living in a theocratic system. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. We are not a theocracy. We should understand that. Uh, The Mosaic Law is typically viewed in three parts as the Moral Law, consisting of the Ten Commandments, the Civil Law, which addressed slavery, property rights, economics, etc., and the Ceremonial Law, which addressed the tabernacle, priest, worship, and the sacrificial system as a whole. We should understand that the Mosaic Law has been fulfilled by Christ and rendered inoperative as a rule of life for Christians. And I've already addressed that uh, to a larger degree, so I don't want to unpack that. But just simply to say that that is not how the believer deals with sin living in the dispensation of the church age. Uh, Paul made clear that the Mosaic Law is not the rule of life for the Christian. He even referred to it as a ministry of death and condemnation. 
Paul stated that it was intended to be temporary, that it was never the basis for justification, but was intended to lead men to Christ, that they may be justified by faith. Citing Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum again, he says, quote, As a rule of life, the law of Moses was temporary and came to an end with the death of the Messiah, end quote. According to Romans 6.14, the church-age believer is no longer under law, but under grace. Being under the grace system does not mean that the believer is without law and, that, and can therefore sin as he pleases. And I run into some ignorant <laughs> believers who say, oh, well, if you're not under the law, it means you can sin as you please. No, no, no. We are under the law of Christ that is the rule of life for us. Um, <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 6.15, What then shall we say? Because uh, Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. And he challenges that. Think of Titus 2. Paul says, For the grace of God... The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And, and what is it that this grace communicates to us to us? Notice verses 12 through 14. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. That's what grace teaches. That is what grace teaches. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Uh, the New Testament speaks of the perfect law of liberty, the royal law, the law of Christ, and the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Going on in the notes here, the Christian is commanded to, uh, according to Romans thir uh, thirteen fourteen to put on the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and to make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. To make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So the Christian must not only choose to live according to the new nature in conformity to the Spirit's guiding, but must also learn to starve his sin nature. To make no provision for the flesh means the Christian is to stop exposing himself to the things of the world that excite the flesh and lead to sinful behavior. Let me say that again. To make no provision for the flesh means that the Christian is to stop exposing himself to the things of the world that excite the flesh and lead to sinful behavior. If you have a problem with alcoholism, stop going to the bars and stop hanging out with people who drink. They're not your friends. If you have a problem with lust, uh, stop exposing yourself to the things that excite you. Okay, whether that be on television or in person or uh, through the internet or whatever. Stop exposing yourself to that. So again, to make no provision for the flesh means that the Christian is to stop exposing himself or herself to the things of the world that excite the flesh and lead to sinful behavior. The positive action is to grow spiritually with biblical teaching. And I drive this point over and over and over again. You cannot live what you do not know. You can't. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. And it is the food that nourishes us from the inside. It is what gives us divine viewpoint that allows us to be able to frame life from the divine perspective and really puts before us a really the opportunity to grow. So the positive action is to grow spiritually with biblical teaching. 
Christian fellowship, worship and prayer. Uh, these are some of the positive actions so that the believer grows to maturity, grows to maturity. It is only by spiritual growth and drawing closer to God that the Christian glorifies the Lord and learns to live righteously. It is a life of faith in God and His Word. It is a life of faith in God and His Word. And I might also add there that it is also a discipline, a discipline of the mind, a discipline of the will, as we apply ourselves to advance in our walk with the Lord. Lastly, victory by the Holy Spirit. Victory in the Christian life starts with regeneration. It does. It starts with regeneration. As the believer is made alive in Christ and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But it also includes choices we make to submit to the Spirit's leading as He directs us according to God's Word. We have to say yes to the Spirit. We do. And not quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit. Uh, And I will deal with this uh, in more detail in future lessons. So next time we meet, we will talk about four aspects of righteousness, four aspects of righteousness. So I hope that today's lesson has been helpful to you, that it has provided some insight into uh, God's Word uh, and has been beneficial to you. And I thank you very much, and I wish you a blessed day.